You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica is a really wonderful part of Scripture. Partly because, uh, as with all of Paul's letters, you get such an authentic and heartfelt insight into the past. Like those discoveries they have like at, at Pompeii, where you, you, uh, things have been preserved perfectly, and you can kind of see what daily life is like. You get that same feeling as you look at all of Paul's letters, especially the smaller ones, where uh, there's so much detail, so much passing detail. Um, it kind of makes that gap of time, uh, 2,000 years nearly, just seem that not just time, actually, gap of culture seem really, really small. We feel very close to the text and to Paul himself and to this church in Thessalonica. It's also a fascinating book because of the situation in uh, at surrounding the start of the church in Thessalonica. Paul had to flee from there because of persecutions just a few weeks after he arrived to preach the gospel for the first time. But in that short time loads and loads of people were converted and a church was born, a new and vibrant and healthy church. That is just amazing, isn't it? Imagine having a ministry like that. Paul ended up in Corinth. He had to flee for his life. Um, but for some, And we don't know why exactly, but he couldn't go back to Thessalonica. Um, so he decided to send Timothy to check on them to see how they're doing, as you would. I think I would probably do that if I'd been in a situation. And not just to check on them, but to encourage them as well. And the chapter we look at today, um, chapter 3, deals with Paul's response. After Timothy is gone and spent some time with the church at Thessalonica, Timothy comes back to Paul and his companions and reports on the church, and he, he basically says, it's going re- like insanely well. <laughs> really, really well. And that, that's the background to our passage today, and it helps us understand a little bit of what we're reading, of course, But I want to bring in another thread that helps guide us in what God would say to us this morning, um, just to hear more clearly. It seems that all of Paul's churches exhibited that watchfulness that we were talking about last week, that expectation about the Lord's return marked all of his churches. And we can see that in the way that he writes to them. He, He says again and again that they should be living as if Jesus is coming back right now and um thinking about the second coming. And this passage is a good example, too. It ends in verse 13 with, May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So we come today, we enter into the season of Advent, and for four Sundays leading up to Christmas, our readings will direct our attention to the Lord's return. We've already had a bit of that, thinking about Christ as King and about his second coming at the end of Mark's Gospel. But for another four Sundays, we're going to be thinking about those things. And what I want to encourage you to do and what I think God wants to begin in us today is just to see the next four weeks as a kind of time of training, of discipline, as it were, a kind of mini like Lent period when we are focusing really on being prepared to meet with God. It's really interesting that the whole of our discipleship is not meant to be this. um, We're not meant to be over attentive to ourselves all the time because it takes us away from loving others and serving God. It can make us kind of overly scrupulous, you know, worrying about religion and and, and things like that and and behavior being inward looking rather than being outward looking. But there are times when it's really helpful for us to have a kind of period of training 
so that we can be free the rest of the time. A period of reflection to think, how did I do? What am I going to do? So that we don't have to think like that all the time. And that's really what I'd love to encourage you to do over the next four weeks as we come to Christmas. Treat that time. You're going to have a big slap-up meal and lovely, relaxing you know, Christmas time. It's going to be easy and celebratory from Christmas, uh, from December 25th, isn't it? Up until that time, just really take that time to examine your hearts, see how you're doing, do a little spiritual health check. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so with that in the background, are we really living as if Jesus is coming again? Are we really prepared to meet him? I want to pick out two um, things from the passage that I think really help us and challenge us individually, and I think also as a church um, in the coming weeks and also for the year to come, um, that help us to be ready. Those two things are, firstly, Paul's delight in new birth. That's the first thing. And the second thing is Paul's focus on affection. Affection. So we're going to look at those two things together. So firstly, Paul's delight in new birth. One thing I think comes across so clearly in this passage, it's so obvious, especially the verses we've read this morning, is Paul's delight in the new faith of these Christians in Thessalonica. He's just so overjoyed at this kind of miraculous birth of this church that after just a few weeks, we're not sure exactly how long, long he was there. Acts tells us he was there preaching in a certain way for three Sundays, maybe two weeks, but it might be that he was there a little bit longer, but you know, it was definitely weeks, not months. Um, and he's just so full of thankfulness. Verse 9, he literally says, Now can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? If you're an evangelist, if you're a missionary, an apostle like Paul, there can be nothing more satisfying than seeing a church like the church at Thessalonica come into being, can there? I think that his feelings are partly relief because he says in chapter two, he says, we were torn away from you, like a, you know, torn away from them, like a mother from a child, like too soon. Uh, we wanted to spend longer with you, having been forced to flee because of this persecution, because of the riots and so on, having been forced to flee. You know, he must have been worried that things might go pear-shaped. He's, he's still got things to teach them. He's still got an apostolic foundation to lay. He says, I want to come back and complete the job. So, you know, it's not done. So there's definitely a sense of relief, but there's also this delight in seeing a church just spring up out of nothing. It, is, it's like a, it must be like a farmer's kind of delight in having done, you know, a certain amount of consistent work, then seeing an abundant crop, which is kind of out of proportion, really, of the amount of effort that you put in, just springing forth. You know, farmers work incredibly hard, but you see, like, you know, how almost automatically crops grow. You know, uh, new calves or new lambs are born. It's just, it's incredible. And I think Paul shares in some of that. He's amazed at the abundance of what's produced in the life of this new church and how, even though he couldn't be there to oversee it, how automatically it happened. There's something in Paul's celebration, I think, his, his joy that matches what Jesus says um, in Luke 15, verse 7, when he says there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to. So Paul has this incredible joy. And I, I just want to bring a very simple challenge from that, that Paul's feeling for this young church should remind us 
as a church of the joy of seeing people come to faith in Christ. We should have this same joy, shouldn't we, in the church? It should be a regular part of our life. We should be bowled over again and again by how amazingly the gospel works in people's lives. Yes, we're overjoyed when someone comes to faith because you know someone is saved from hell, saved from the punishment of sin, saved from all, all the, the downsides of sin. But you know, there's a, there's a there's a kind of substance to that in this life that should bowl us over when we see people come to faith. It's not just the thought of a soul entering the safe harbour of Christ, but there's a joy in actually seeing the difference that the gospel makes to people's lives. Like when you experience the birth of a child, whether it's you had it in your own family or you've seen it in other people's family, there is this concentration of good things in the first moments, the first year or so of life. So many good things happen that it kind of, it's just a time of absolute delight. It's packed with joy. We see... Um, our children change so much in the first 12 months of their lives. There's so much potential there. It's almost pure joy, isn't it? And I think there's a comparison there between what Paul is feeling, what we feel about children in our own lives, and how we should feel as a church. When you think about what happens when someone becomes a Christian, you've got the big picture of a soul being plucked from the mire and put on the rock. <laughs> he set my feet on the rock. You've got the big picture of someone leaving the kingdom of darkness through the, the floodwaters of the Red Sea, safe into the, God's promised land. You've got that massive picture of someone clutched from the, the hand of Satan and placed to the bosom of the Father. I mean, it's just wonderful, isn't it? But then you get the, the detail, the everyday life. A, a, a restless, unsatisfied soul filled with God's peace. Joy, where there was no joy, where there was just sadness. Freedom, where there was bondage. Understanding, light, where there was darkness. You know, just suddenly, isn't it amazing how almost automatically, when you see someone saved and come to faith, there is a sudden of understanding. You think, well, you know, we've taught a little bit, but like this is more, you know, there's this instinct for the truth of God. Prayer begins to happen and worship. Isn't it just nothing more wonderful than seeing someone who's come to faith lift their arms in worship and praise God? It's, it gives us joy. That's the point. It's devotion to Christ. Seeing someone fall in love with Jesus and fall in love with his presence. A love of scripture. The fruit of the spirit coming forth. The gifts of the spirit uh, being manifest. In these, these signs that come with new birth. In the early years of Christian life, they, they come thick and fast and the changes come and we get to enjoy this concentration of joy when we see that. Well, what, what I want to say to you, the first application from this first point is simply this. That is so good having all those things in, this, in, in the life of someone who's, who's transformed. It's such a powerful source of joy. It's such an amazing source of strength to his church. It enables us to love God so much that even if we weren't commanded to go and preach the gospel, we should be seeking to see people saved anyway as just part of our life as a church together. It's just so good. You know, there's um, some science that suggests that a lot of the autoimmune diseases that are affecting people's lives, these days, allergies and so on, 
uh, to do with under-stimulated uh, antibodies or something like that, <laughs> white blood cells. Or Sorry for scientists for messing up. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, where the body has so little to do, we've, you know, first place in a world and a all sorts of things for our bodies to do, get dirty and so on. And we live lives that are so clean and so without that kind of activity that the body kind of, it's almost like it gets bored and it turns in on itself. And there's something like that that happens in churches when we are not focused on new birth. We're so made for um, mission. We're so called to share the gospel. that when we don't, it's like you get a bit sick. You get a bit inward looking and Bad stuff, you know, just begins to happen. I think God is calling us at this time to focus again on just how much we need, not just for the sake of the people around us, but even just to be a healthy church, to be alive as God wants us to be alive. How much we need to focus on seeing people say, it's not much more complicated than that, to be honest with you. I just feel like God would like us to realize without that focus, we are not truly alive. God wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to be directed towards that fruitfulness. So can I ask you just um, some specific things in your own life? Maybe just for the coming four weeks, but maybe for the next year. Can I ask you to pray? earnestly and make a commitment now to pray earnestly that God would give us new birth in this church, that we would be able to welcome new spiritual children into our family. I was moved to think of um, the prayer of Hannah in the book of Samuel. It says, um, you know, Hannah longed for a child. She was childless. Longed for a child and other people uh, tormented her they teased her because of it. She's so moved in her spirit. She cried out to God. It says, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, I'll dedicate him to the Lord. God wants us to be praying those kinds of prayers for the people around us. To actually... A childless church. I know we've got loads of children and noise and all that sort of thing. But in the spirit, the childless church should be weeping bitterly before God. Not bitterness that is out of despair that says, you know, God has given up on us, but a bitterness of, Lord, we are not whole. We are not who you want us to be without these spiritual children among us. Can I also encourage you to be hopeful in your attitude towards evangelism? I think God would ask us, ask that of us. You know, we talk about hard ground in evangelism. I think our, it seems to me that our culture is hard ground, rocky paths. It's like, you know, planting potatoes in Siberia. It is very, very difficult to evangelize in our culture. It seems that way. But with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. It's always hard. <laughs> it's hard to get someone out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's hard to get people through the waters of the Red Sea, isn't it? It's impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. So it doesn't matter how hard it seems to us. We have to be ready to, in our attitude, to preach 
God's word in season and out of season to take every opportunity to invite people. So I just, I'd love to, us to just commit to working hard. I think God would challenge us to work hard, no matter how difficult it seems, now, no matter how unrewarding your efforts at evangelism, whatever they are, prayer or practically, you know, you're knocking on doors or you're giving people invitations to carol services or whatever, no matter how fruitless or, or pointless it seems to you, be faithful and do those things and draw people to God, call people to him. Even when it's really scary or difficult, the joy is worth it, isn't it? And again, thinking about the joy of the gospel, I just feel like God would underline something he began last week, uh, just began to say last week, um, just a bit more personally. You know, I don't know if um, you've ever got into the habit of revisiting places that are important to you, where important things have happened. There's a cafe Abby and I used to go back to in London, in uh, um, Covent Garden, that had an underground section. And we used to go there when we were dating, before we were married. So it has nice memories, although it's shut now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Amen. That's the end of the (laughs) sermon. But we used to go, when we used to go back to London, especially before the kids were born, we'd go and we sort of reminisce. You know, there's something powerful about that. You know, maybe the place where you got engaged or something significant happened, a, a restaurant, you know, where you proposed. Or there's something lovely about going back and revisiting and reminding yourself of all the hope and the possibility and everything else. It helps to actually kind of reframe and remind you of what it's all about, doesn't it, when you do those things? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Um, and I just, um, I feel like God would like us to do that in our own walk as well. A bit like we were saying last week, just to remember how faithful God has been over the years. I just felt, I felt prompted just to bring this to you, to focus not just on his faithfulness over the years, but remember his faithfulness in the very early part of your faith. You know, some of you were converted, like, you know, proper kind of stereotypical evangelical conversion experience. Some of you grew up in the faith, but there will be a moment, even if you grew up in the faith, where you recognize that early beginning and you really began to see God do things in specific and definite ways. And I just feel like God would call us back to that time. You need to remember that feeling, to remember all the things he did for us. You know, as we get older in the faith, just like in life, we the complications of everyday life can mask and obscure all the hope that we had. It can actually hide some of the tremendous things that God did, and we can lose sight of it because we face challenges, sometimes big, sometimes even small ones, can make us forget we just get a bit tired. We forget the, the days of our youth. And I just feel like God would remind us. And that source of joy that we see in others, it should be an ongoing source of joy to us as well. Remember? <laughs> Do you remember what God did for you in the early days? There was this a lovely um, uh, Psalm 126 when uh, people of Israel returned to Jerusalem. And they, they, the psalmist says this, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. I think that's how I felt when I got saved. We, uh, our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues were songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we're filled with joy. We do well to revisit the time of our salvation. Paul 
takes that old covenant and brings it into the new in, in his letter to Titus. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So what changes did God do in you in those early years when it was more obvious and they came thick and fast and you, like a newborn baby, you changed so quickly within the space of months or a year or two? Do you remember the peace that he gave you? Do you remember the freedom that he gave you? The forgiveness that you felt? Do you remember the cleansing from guilt? Do you remember the sense of purpose? Going from directionless life to a life focused on Christ. Do you remember his love being poured into your heart? Light being poured into the world all at the same time. Do you remember getting to know Jesus? feeling his presence for the first time and speaking his name on first name terms. Remember that the time that you didn't know him? God would just remind us to revisit that place and be filled again with the joy of our salvation. And every time we repent, every time we come to Christ in faith, sin in our hearts burning us down, we revisit that place. He restores to us the joy of our salvation. He cleanses us white as snow, takes our sin as far from the east as, as the west, away from us. Just encourage you to, not just now, but frequently return. You might not just have joy in seeing others saved you might be reminded of his mercy to you. Second big point in our passage today, and it's very simple really, is just not just Paul's joy in their salvation, but Paul's affection for this church. You know, his, he obviously, you can see it kind of, you know, his pen is full of love as he writes this letter. He's not just objectively loving the church. He's not just like, I must do right by the Thessalonians. <laughs> he's, he loves them, doesn't he? Like he's so moved with, with passion for them. It, it flows from this deep well. I love it. It's just, it comes across so strongly, verse 9, but also in the previous verse, which you didn't read. But he says, listen to this, just try and hear it afresh. For now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. Imagine your feelings being so bound up in the, the spiritual life of somebody else. Isn't that wonderful? He loves them so much. In verse 9, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have? He genuinely, passionately delights in this church, in these new brothers and sisters that he's, that he's found. He feels for them. He, he worries about them. He carries their burdens. Because he perceives, he's come to know because of his experience of Christ and, and Christ's mercy to him, he sees their value in the eyes of God. And he feels it in his heart. 
And then he, that feeling overflows from him to them. He says, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. He, he's not just content to feel that way for you, but he sees this as a very pillar of, of this new church, that they might experience the same affection for one another as he experiences for them. I'm using the word affection just as a placeholder for the word love. We say the word love so much, it's just going to go... <laughs> I mean love, but I'm going to say affection because it's grasping the nuance of what I think God wants to say to us this morning. God wants us to feel that affection for one another and for everyone else. Just as Paul felt like, the, he, like this for the church. It is remarkable. And I just, I'm not going to say a lot about this because I think it's, so, it's such a straightforward a fact, and, but yet so profound that we can just kind of skip right past it. That at the centre of church life and Christian life, God is moving us towards this point where we feel that affection for others. That we love others as God loves us. That we feel the same feelings about others as God feels about us. Especially in the church and also overflowing to those outside the church. You know, Jesus prays these astonishing prayers in, in the middle of, towards the end of John's gospel. John 17, he says, he prays to the Father and says, I want them to, to know the same love that you and I have between ourselves among them. That's such a fundamental part of what God wants to do in us. And just, if we want to be prepared to meet the Lord, you know that, yes, there are, there are other aspects to the love of Christ. There's knowing the love of the Father for us. And there's loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But God wants us to focus this morning on this challenge to feel that same affection for one another. If we want to be prepared to meet the Lord, then we have to set our sights on knowing that affection for others. To know that actually, as much as we long to go to heaven, other people are almost as much a part of that heaven as Jesus himself is. Because in each person, sanctified and made like Christ, we encounter God's glory uniquely. And we get a foretaste of that in this life, as much as we have faith to pursue it. So this is a personal challenge in this time of preparation. You know, um, some of you use, or you, you'll know what I'm talking about anyway, those um, things that measure your blood sugar level. One little, and then it gives you a reading, right? It just tells you, objectively, this is how much sugar is in your blood. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had something like that in the Christian life? Just tell us how you're doing. Just a little machine. Three. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> Well, apart from that, <laughs> I do think we have those. And I think, actually, our affection for others is a really, really good guide to how we're doing. A really reliable guide. Our affection for others, or our lack of affection for others, especially within the church, is perhaps the closest thing we have to a spiritual blood sugar level 
meter reading thing, which I don't know the name of. <laughs> so here's the challenge. Just to look inside our hearts and to say, you know, what is going on there? And, you know, I'm not necessarily talking about some big, massive kind of spiritual cancer that's going to be really obvious in your life. You know, it could be relationships that are really close to you. It could be for some of you, you know, relationships closest, brothers and sisters even. You know, it could be husbands and wives. Is there within you that tendency towards rejecting this affection? You know, God warns us about it. It Particular things like being quick to judge, being eager to think the worst, being annoyed or even disgusted by people, being impatient or angry, being in turmoil when you're in their presence, being dismissive. Being quick to distance yourself, being shut off, being content with surface relationships, being mocking towards those you are closest to. Writing people off and saying, you know what, I tried as hard as I can. And, you know, these are all sure, clear signs of this high or low, depending on how you look at it, blood sugar reading. That something is not good, not in the world around you, but in you yourself. There's something that's off balance, but it's not someone else's fault. In the Sermon on Mount, Jesus highlights these often hidden and subtle things and brings them to the fore. He says, if you find yourself calling someone fool, then you are close to the fires of hell. So, if you find yourself angry with someone, then you are close to committing murder, guilty of murder. You know, I think this is something that Paul had come to realize really deeply. I think it's something, it's not easy to find a particular verse of Paul where he talks about this, but I think it comes through in all his letters. He has come to recognize within himself the danger of this, this hidden negativity. It says in, in Acts, um, that Paul at one point in Acts 9, it says, Paul was breathing out murderous threats to the church. You know, Paul, he, he was arresting Christians, having them tried and put to death. But you know, behind that, I just think in that verse we have a little clue that it wasn't just this kind of outward action. It was a deep antipathy, a kind of misanthropic, you know, a hatred, actually. He was breathing out murderous threats. There's something starting deep inside him. And he writes about it. You know, I think he writes about those things in his letters. You know, when he writes in Romans 2, he says, you know, you who... Um, tell others not to commit idolatry. Do you rob temples? I don't think he's literally saying there are people going around robbing temples. I think he's saying you know, the hidden motives of your heart make you guilty before God. When we find this attitude in our hearts, this rejection of affection, even if it's just directed towards one or two people, it robs us of joy and peace. And most of all, this is the kind of big picture. It robs us of the opportunity to know God more and to glorify him because he is glorified in each and every person who's made in his image and especially so, of course, in those who are saved. You know, if, if you find that in your heart, if searching now or coming weeks, you know, I'm not going to go into a detailed prescription of what the remedy is but i just encourage you wherever you find that big ways or small ways just bring it to god ask him to fill you with the opposite 
that affection that Paul has for this church in Thessalonica, that affection that God has for you. He loves you. He accepts you. He delights in you. And it's not a naive delight. He, you know, we talk about being robed in the righteousness of Christ, but God, he can actually see our sins. <laughs> he doesn't know that they're there, but he loves us. It's, it's not a naive affection that God calls us to have for one another. It's a deep and profound um, acceptance to treat one another as God treats us. So God calls us to, on a personal level, to accept, to approach, to have concern, to think and hope the best of others, to learn to delight in them, to learn especially to delight in people who are not like us, with whom we don't have natural affection. God can give us supernatural affection to love others as we love ourselves. Will you accept that personal challenge to examine your hearts in that way? To think of the person you find that least likely of and to think God can give me affection for that person. It's a personal challenge. It's also a challenge to us as a community. Paul's prayer for them is not only that they love as he has loved them, but they would increase and overflow. I just... I want to preach a whole sermon on those three things to be honest. Love, increase, overflow. I'm not going to, I promise. <laughs> I just, it's such a wonderful progression. It's worth just thinking about. But you know what? I just want to say to you guys, actually, it feels like a while since we've revisited this topic. Maybe since we finished John, I don't know. We talked about it a lot back then. <laughs> Do you know that some churches don't even know that this affection that we're supposed to have for one another is part and parcel of the Christian life? <laughs> you know that some places don't even teach it? Or if they do teach it, it's just go straight over their heads. Let's not be like that as a church. I'm not just challenging you individually. I'm saying this is who we should be as a community. That's, that's what God's words challenges us to be, that we love and increase and overflow in love towards one another. You know, when we take communion, it's not just about being united with Christ. It's one life where you're being united with one another in the peace of the Holy Spirit who indwells us like a body. Isn't that wonderful? That God wants to do that. He wants us to, to give us this affection for one another as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. I just think it's, it sounds impossible. Not, not because you guys are rubbish, mostly because I'm rubbish, like for me, but you know, it just, it just sounds too high-minded, doesn't it? Too ambitious. It sounds kind of ridiculous that a group of people could love each other like this, but it is the promise of Scripture that that is what God is doing among us. And I just want to take hold of that promise and say, with God, nothing is impossible. We, the scripture says we are to inherit in this life hundreds of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. That is a wonderful promise. To be genuinely in a family. You know, many churches, church communities, where this isn't taught, they have good relationships, natural affection, natural groupings, where people feel at home and comfortable and all those things. It's all good. But a church should be a place where the boundaries of natural relationships are broken, like a river spilling over its banks, where there are no rich or poor or slave or free. <laughs> There's no young or old or you know, male or female in the sense of competition or objectification. 
There's no Jew or Gentile. There's no racial tension. And so that means just really simply that we have to aim for those things. We have to reject what comes naturally and aim for what is supernatural. Reject cliqueiness. Reject the security of just talking to the people that you know well, that you feel comfortable with. It means increasing our love. So not just being content with what we've got, with what comes naturally, but trying to increase, trying to overflow into those lives by seeking genuine relationships and affection with other people too. Talking to people that we don't know very well. Not trying to, you know, it's hard to talk over tea and coffee, isn't it? I mean, literally it's hard to talk because it's very loud out there. <laughs> Which is a wonderful, wonderful blessing. You know, tea and coffee is not God's ordained, after the service, not God's ordained mean for us, means for us to have fellowship. Invite one another into your homes. You know, we said, we uh, quite a few times I've said church meetings and preaching, but I think that, that a basic attitude of hospitality, whether that's literally inviting people into your homes or just an openness of life, is the key strategy God would give us to reach people. We have to, we've got to do that with each other so that we can become comfortable doing it with everyone else too. You know, there was a time we used to do um, uh, agape meals in each other's homes. You remember? Some of you remember that? we make a list and you could sign up as a host. You could sign up as a guest. And then on a Sunday morning, just before I come to church, I'd randomly assign, randomly assign, uh, <laughs> host the guests. <laughs> uh, so people could get to know each other. You know, and we stopped doing that. The reason was we wanted it to happen spontaneously. You know, we were like a big state church sort of thing. I just want to Remind you of that. Remind you of the joy that that was to get to know people and encourage you to make that brave step just to simply step out. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know, people don't do that to me. Well, you do it to them. <laughs> you know, we love not because other people loved us first, but because God loved us first. You don't have to wait. So expanding that hospitality to include those we don't normally invite. Making time to deliberately get to know people we don't know very well. You know, and all that comes, it is, it is hard in the natural to do those things. But it causes us to cry out to God and say, Lord, you know what? And I, this is a genuine prayer of mine, and it should be a prayer of yours. I, I know my limitations in this, this regard so well. I'm such a coward, <laughs> so insecure, naturally speaking, that I, I would shy away from the very challenges I'm giving you. But my genuine cry of my heart, and should, should be yours too, look, Help me to love people. Not just to do good, but to feel the affection you have for them. Help me to see them as you see them. To delight in them as you delight in them. And that should be our our prayer all round. Family is the place where we learn to love. And when church becomes that kind of family, we learn to love the world around us. So the two points are actually related. As we love each other, we increase, we overflow, and we reach out, and we have the joy of new birth. But the last bit of Paul's prayer is, may you strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Verse 13. That holiness, 
That readiness to meet Jesus doesn't come from avoiding sin. It doesn't come from avoiding sin any more than an apple tree is a good apple tree because it looks nice. It comes from fruit. Holiness comes from fruitfulness. Fruit counts in God's kingdom. What will prepare us to meet Jesus is that desire to be fruitful in new birth and in love for one another. When you seek love, to know it, to increase in it, to overflow with it, you desire Christ himself. And as you walk in love, that means you're not just walking. It means you're running to meet him. It means that you have this growing assurance that you are your beloved's and your beloved is yours. And that's what gives us the cry, Maranatha. Lord, come. Let's pray.